All right, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it, fill, it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Grass withers, flowers fade away, but the Word of God stands forever. So let's pray before we consider it further tonight. Lord Jesus, we know that these are your words. And so we ask, Lord, that you would be here to teach them to us tonight by your Holy Spirit. Would you, would you be here with us, Lord? Would you, would you work in spite of the shortcomings and sins of the speaker? Will you open our hearts and our minds, our ears, our eyes to your word? Show us something of your grace and your mercy. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So this story that I'm about to relate to you, I have on, I got it third hand. So I I have it on good account, so I feel like it's true. But a friend of a friend uh, went to New York to go meet Dave Thomas. This was was years and years ago. Go meet Dave Thomas, the founder of, of Wendy's, right, who's now deceased, but uh, went to go meet him to uh, see about starting some Wendy's franchises. So when he got there, uh, the receptionist said, you're actually going to be meeting with Mr. Thomas in his limo. And so he uh, gets in the limo with Dave Thomas, who's actually already meeting with another guy uh, about starting Wendy's franchises. And so what he sees is, is Dave Thomas look at this guy and say, I've got a check right here with your name on it for a million dollars. It's yours to start Wendy's franchises if you can promise to me that you're going to invest yourself totally in these franchises, that you're going to give, that you're going to give everything of yourself, that you're going to put this ahead of your family, your friends, your social life, that you're going to fully invest your life in this. Can you do that? And the guy says, uh, well, I mean, this is, it's going to be incredibly important to me. I, and Dave leans across him opens the limo door and says, get out. And he tosses the guy out. And then he looks at my friend's friend. And he says, what about you? I've got a check. Put your name on it for a million dollars. If you'll totally invest yourself in these franchises, will you do it? And he said, absolutely I'll do it. (laughs) And so he got his money and uh, started his Wendy's franchises. Um, But... For whatever you think about that, Dave Thomas, right, he knows, he knows one thing. That if you're going to make a franchise work, if it's going to make 
then you've got to invest yourself entirely into it. You've got to, you've got to sink yourself into it in such a way that, that you just make it work, right? It's got to be, you've got to be completely invested in it. In this semester, in this time together, we are looking at the book of Acts, which is the story of the church. And we're doing that to answer the question, what is it that's so special about the church anyway, or Christianity? What is it that's unique about Christianity that's caused it to, uh, to span uh, the test of time, to advance like it has, to, to spread across the world and become so uh, influential and um, controversial in many ways? What is it about the church or Christianity? And what I want to see tonight from this passage uh, is a little bit of what, what I think we see in that illustration, that What's unique about the church, or one thing that's unique about the church that we see here in this passage, is that God, God invests himself entirely into it through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? This is the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, what is it that's so special about the church? It has the very Spirit of God in it. God comes and he puts himself in the midst of it. He comes and he gets right in the middle of it. So rehearse the story uh, that we just read. Basically, right before this, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, Jesus uh, was um, ascended to heaven and before he left, he said he's going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. And he told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for it. And so here they are in Jerusalem and they're, they're waiting for something to happen. For what Jesus said. So there's about 120 people. It's all, the, it's all the Christians that there are really at this time. And they're sitting around this room and they're, and they're waiting for something. It's Pentecost. And then, and then this happens. They're sitting around and they, and they hear this, this sound of, of wind rushing through the room. And then they see what appears to be fire come into the room and separate and rest over everybody's head. And then they begin speaking in tongues in different languages that they've never studied or learned before. And other people begin to hear them and, and, uh, and so on. So it, it's an amazing, in, in many ways a very strange, in some ways scary story. And so I want to take just a few minutes and to look at, tonight we're going to look at each part, uh, the three elements, I guess you could say, that show up. We're going to look at the, um, at the fire, the wind, and the tongues, okay? Three things, as we see how God has invested himself in the church through the Holy Spirit. So first, let's look at, at the fire, these tongues of fire that showed up. Um, and I think it's reflected on your outline. Uh, that we, what we see here is God's presence. Uh, you see in verse 3, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Uh, it might seem really random that that, that that happens. Like, why does fire show up and then, you know, divide and rest over people? You know, what's going on with that? But if we look in the Old Testament, uh, we begin to get a little idea of what, what's happening here. In fact, we see fire fairly often in the Old Testament in connection with God. A um, handful of times. In Exodus 3, God appears to Moses, how? In a burning bush, right? Uh, and then particularly um, in Israel's, as they're being led out of Egypt, how are they, what do they follow? They follow uh, by day a pillar of fire, right? 
in Exodus 40, 40, 38, it says this, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And we could turn up several more uh, examples, but what's the point? What does the fire represent? Well, I think very simply, the fire represents God's presence with his people. It represents to his people that he's there with them, and he's right in their midst. He's living with them. In the camps, when they, would, when they were wandering through the desert, they would set up camp, and the tabernacle would be right in the middle. With all the people camped around them. God saved his people, and then he came in, and he lived right in the middle of them. And actually, there's this, there's this really great progression throughout the Bible of where God, where God dwells, or how he meets with his people. You know, at first, it's sort of at various times and various places, like in the burning bush. Um, and then in the, uh, in the Exodus, you have him in the, in the tabernacle, right, in the tent that moves around. And then when they get into the promised land and established, uh, they build the temple, right? And God's presence dwells in the temple, a fixed location. And then ultimately he comes in as the person, in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He comes and he lives in, his, in and with his people. And then you have this, right? We've had Jesus, Jesus just left. And then you have God show up, right? The same fire, they would know that's what that means, and not only does God come and live with his people, but he comes and he lives inside his people. He comes and he, he takes up his residence inside of us, inside of them, inside of us. He comes and he lives in the very hearts of his people. And we should have expected this in some ways. Listen, listen to John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will make our home with him. It's an amazing thing that God loves his people in such a way that he comes and he takes up residence in their hearts. Think about who you'd be willing to live. Think about the people that you're willing to live with, right? You're not willing to live with just just anybody, right? You know, you got tons of acquaintances, you got a lot of friends, you got a few good friends, you got a couple of really good friends, and then you have the people that you live with, right? Uh, you know, probably the, the ultimate expression of that is, is getting married. You know, when you would, uh, who you would say, I want to live with you for the rest of my life, right? The, the, the closer you are to somebody, the more willing you are to live with them. Um, you, only, you only want to live with people that you really do like and really want to be around, right? Um, when I was in college, I asked, uh, told my campus minister, I would never do this to you, by the way. I told my campus minister, I had just graduated. I was still living there. I'm looking for another roommate, uh, another housemate. And I said, but don't tell him, you know, if you think of someone, let me know. Don't just advertise that around because you don't want just anybody living with you. Pretty sure it was later that day I get a phone call from somebody I'd never met. Said, hey, uh, Les told me that you were looking for a roommate. Thanks a lot. Actually, it ended up working out okay, right? But... I'm panicked for obvious reasons. I, I don't know this guy. I don't know that I want to live with you. It's a big deal who we live with, right? Um, it's a big deal. And so, the fact that God comes and he says, I'm, and shows us here and does come and live in our hearts, that he comes and dwells inside of us through the Holy Spirit, I mean, to put it simply, is a big deal. 
right? It means, at the very least, it means that God really does like to be with you. If you're one, if you trust Jesus, if you're a Christian, it means the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. It's evidence of the fact that God really does like you. He really does want to be with you. And we could leave it there, you know, sort of leave that as our take-home thought and say, look how beautiful it is that God loves you so much that he wants to live with you. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But I think if we left it there, we would be robbing it of some of its its punch. Um, Now, why is that? I want you to imagine that if you were in this room, you're you're uh, probably a, a Jew, and this is an enormous deal. In fact, it was probably terrifying to you. That this fire comes in and then rests over your head. Because all those examples that I listed in the Old Testament of when we see the fire, think about it. Oh, God in the burning bush, right? He warns Moses, do not come near and take off your sandals because this is holy ground. Um, in the tabernacle where the fire was, the high priest went into the tabernacle once a year. And that was it. You didn't go near it. Um, on Mount Sinai, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and fire descends on the mountain, God tells Moses, tell the people not to even touch the mountain because if they do, they'll die. Right? Every time we see fire and we see God's presence, we see this closeness. And at the same time, though, we see this, this fear, this, this dreadful holiness that you can't even really touch. You really can't even approach it. And so, so think about the fact that that fire, that that same God who's no less holy shows up and puts himself right, right inside of you. So what does that mean for us? Well, it, as we said, it means that God, God really does like you. God loves you. But it also means that God has done something truly amazing for that to happen. Right? If you can't touch the mountain, you can't touch the tabernacle, or else you'll die. For that fire to be able to come and rest on you and in you, it means that God has done something amazing to make that happen. And he's done, it's evidence of the fact that he's done something and not us, right? It means that God doesn't just enlist his people to work in the kingdom, like we talked about the three weeks ago, um, and it just exists in this sort of king and servant relationship, but that he, that he comes and he, he wants to be close to you. He wants to be near you. Secondly, we see the fire, but we also see the wind. We see the wind come in, uh, at least the sound. We hear, hear the mighty rushing wind. And we see the wind show up in the Old Testament too, a good bit. Um, in fact, the, the Hebrew and the Greek word can, uh, is the same for wind and spirit. That's how closely related they are. And you have to kind of judge each time it shows up. Does it mean wind? Does it mean spirit? They're very closely related. Um, so what exactly does that mean, though, when we say God's spirit? Have you ever thought about that? Like, say, Holy Spirit, God, the spirit of God, what does that mean? Does that mean, like, his, his essence? You know, like, she has a sweet spirit about her. Is it that kind of spirit? Does it mean just, he doesn't have a body? You know, he's just disembodied. He's a spirit. What does it mean? Well, again, the Old Testament is going to help us understand what this wind that's rushing around the room even means. Um, I think the best place to look is in Ezekiel. You know, I'm sure you've all been doing your quiet time through Ezekiel. Um, 
but you probably remember this story. You remember the, the Valley of Dry Bones, right? Um, God has promised that he's going to put his spirit inside the hearts of his people one day. And so he takes Ezekiel and he shows him this, this desert, this valley with, with bones, skeletons scattered all over it. This is a big illustration for Ezekiel. And he says, I'm going to put my spirit in the hearts of my people one day. And he says, Ezekiel, pray that the wind will blow and come over these bones. And so he does, and the wind rushes over these bones, and what happens? They begin to reconstitute, right? They, they begin to come together, and they come to life, right? Um, showing that, that w- when I'm going to bring my Holy Spirit, when I'm going to come and dwell inside of your hearts, what my spirit is, is the, it's my creative power. So the wind here in, the, in Acts chapter 2, I think, shows us that God comes with his power. And his power comes and dwells in our lives. It's showing us that he's taken the very energy with which he created the universe. That he created you and I, right? He, he formed us from the dust and then what he gave us the breath or the spirit of life. That that shows up and it comes and it lives inside of us. I've got this long quote about what the Holy Spirit does that uh, I don't think we have time to read. Um, Let me give you one sentence of it. What does the Holy Spirit do? This is from a nerdy theological book. It says, He creates, regenerates, resurrects, and exercises divine authority in Christ's church. More specifically, He affected Mary's virginal conception, anointed and empowered Christ throughout His earthly ministry, and in the hour of His death, glorifies Christ, inspired the Scriptures, convicts the world of sin, and goes on and on. That power comes to rest inside of you. God takes that power, the power that sustained Jesus Christ, that rose Jesus from the dead, and He puts it inside of the hearts of, those, of His people. Think about that. Imagine if the President of the United States, Barack Obama, in case you miss that, Imagine that you, you meet the president and you hit it off and he likes you so much, you know, he wants, to, he wants to come live at your house. Not you live at his house, as cool as that would be. He wants to come live at your house and he, and he does. Um, all right, so obviously if the president's going to come take up residence at your house, some things are going to have to change, right? Um, he's going to have to make some changes, uh, you know, Secret Service is going to have to do a lot of things. Um, you know, your house is probably not as secure as it should be. And, um, so there's going to be a lot of changes take place. Um, and I want you to think about the fact, if you've got the president living at your house, how much would you worry about anymore? Think about, think about how amazing that would be to, to have that kind of resource at home, right? Um, you get a speeding ticket, are you worried about it? No. Um, are you worried about if you can make rent that week? I mean, that month? Probably not. Um, are, are, you, are you thinking, right, did, I, did I lock the back door? Again? You know, are you double checking the locks? Probably not. Um, are you worried about getting, getting in the, the right classes anymore? No. Why? Because you have the most powerful man, arguably in the world, living at your house, right? Whatever you need, we're going to take care of it. Uh, be kind of fun. Or, or, who would do that, right? 
but you can't go over 50 miles an hour. Um, so if you had the president living at your house, right, you have amazing resource. And what this is saying, what, what this text is telling us is that if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you have all the resources of the power of God himself inside of you. That God takes his creative power and he lives inside of you with it. Think about the resources that you have. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that, a few things. It means that God has given you the power to do whatever it is he's called you to do. You know, maybe you feel like you don't really see victory um, over that particular sin in your life that you struggle with. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem to get any better. Um, you don't feel like you see it get any better. Um, maybe, maybe you struggle to love your parents. Talk to your parents. Maybe you struggle to love the people that you live with. Um, you just don't get along. Maybe you struggle with your own faith. Your faith is weak. Or, or you find it difficult to, to ever talk about your faith with other people. You know, whatever it is. I think this is a great encouragement to you. That God has... T- what an encouragement it is to know that God has taken His creative power and it lives inside of you. So that you have that resource to draw on. Are you worried about your struggle with sin? I, I certainly hope you are. Well, know that you have the power of God working for you, inside of you, to fight against sin. And now I know you might ask, well, then, then why do I still struggle, right? Then why is that still, why doesn't he just take it away? And I would say, well, we have to remember what we talked about the first week, right? The, the kingdom is, is already, it's here. Jesus reigns as king. It's here, but it's, it's also not here in its fullness, right? It's already, but it's, it's not yet. But I think the struggle is evidence of God's power at work in you, not evidence of, of a lack of it. So we see the fire as God's presence. We see the uh, uh, wind as God's power. Thirdly and finally, we see, uh, let's look at the tongues, God's plan. I think what we see here is God's plan. Uh, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, comes on these people for the, for the first time. Not that the Holy Spirit hasn't been operative you know, forever. Uh, but in a, in a unique way here, from here on out, the Spirit comes and lives inside of, of followers of Christ. And notice what these people do. Well, notice what they don't do. They don't just sit around and, and talk about it. Or they don't just sit around and, and sort of meditate on it and reflect. Though, I mean, it's certainly a fine thing to do. When the Spirit shows up, we get a vision of what God is up to in this world. It's a little bit of what we talked about a few weeks ago. We get, a, we get a glimpse of the kingdom coming. We get a glimpse of God's big plan. And the reason that we, or where we see that is because they all start speaking in languages that they've never learned before. Okay? I mean, imagine that. Um, so they're at Pentecost, right? Which means uh, Jews from all over the known world. That's why Luke in this selection goes through all those strange names, you know, Elamites and Medes and Parthians, and he's basically saying Jews from everywhere are in Jerusalem, there to celebrate Pentecost. So you've got people that are speaking all kinds of different languages, and they start to hear uh, uh, these people speaking about, about God's kingdom coming in their language. 
And they can look at him and tell, you know, you ain't from where I'm from, but yet you speak my language. Imagine that. Um, and so what is it they're talking about? It says in verse 11, uh, the mighty works of God. They're talking about the mighty works of God. The Spirit has come on these people, and they tell people about it. When the Spirit comes on people, they talk about it. They proclaim it. They proclaim about the good news of the kingdom. They, they're telling everybody that God has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and He's come to put things back the way they're supposed to be. That Jesus has come to undo all the bad stuff in this world. And the fact that they're speaking other languages is one big evidence of that. How do I know that? Again, Old Testament. You remember the story of the uh, Tower of Babel? Genesis 11. Um, Basically, God has told people, um, go spread out throughout all the earth and subdue the earth, take it over, you know, be fruitful and multiply. And they get together in one place and they say, we're going to build a tower right here and be important. We're going to stay right here. So they build their tower and to... uh, to get them to do what he originally wanted them to do, which is spread out over all the earth, what does God do? He confuses their languages, right? That's, he, he makes them all speak a different language. They can't understand each other, and so they eventually just disperse, um, really making them cover the earth. And so what we see here is an undoing of that very judgment, right? Uh, as opposed to confusing their language, now God is undoing that judgment of sin, And he's causing everybody to understand one another. So that, think about the genius of this. So that those people are all going to go back home. And they're all going to take the message that they've heard about Jesus Christ, they're going to take it back with them. It's brilliant. And so what what we see about the kingdom, what we see about the kingdom of God and God's big plan is this, that it's for everybody. It's for Everybody. The good news is for... Well, there are no limits on the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is for everybody. No matter whether you're rich or poor, no matter what country you're from, no matter if you're religious or irreligious, um, if you're a good guy or a bad guy... uh, the good news of Jesus Christ is for everybody. And we're going to talk about this a lot more in weeks to come. And this is one of the first glimpses of it. That this message has no bounds. Nobody's outside the scope of the gospel. It's for everybody. I think the second thing that we see uh, application-wise, uh, and we have mentioned this earlier, is that when the Spirit comes on people, it makes them want to talk about it. And why do people want to talk about it? Because they've heard the good news. They know the bad news of their own heart, that, that their hearts are messed up, that they don't work like they should, and that God has done something about it. That God has sent His Son Jesus to take, to take that sin from us, bear it Himself, and to give us His righteousness. And the more that they've heard that good news, what it causes them to do is to go and tell anybody and everybody. So that other people can have it too. Makes you want to go and tell people. So let me end with this. How do you know if you have the Spirit? I mean, that all sounds good, right? I want God's presence. I want His power. I want to be a part of His plan. How do you know if you have the Spirit? Or how do you know if you can have the Spirit? Is it for me? 
I had a friend ask me that one time. You know, I see all these great promises. How do I know they're for me? How do you know? 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 says this. I think this is beautiful. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul basically says that this is for you if you want it. If you, can hear, if you hear this, if you hear the good news of Jesus Christ that unfortunately you're a sinner and you're far worse than you've ever imagined, but the good news of Jesus is that even though that's the case, He loves you more than you could ever dream. If you hear that, if you want that, then guess what? That's the Spirit at work. That's the Holy Spirit working on you. Do you want it? Because the good news is that this isn't really the first time, this is not at all the first time that God has invested himself in his people. Right? He, we already know that, that he's good for his promises. Because he came and he lived in our midst. And he died in our midst in Jesus Christ. He so invested himself that he came and he lived as one of us. And he died in our place. And the good news is that if you want that, it's yours for free. You just get to take it. So my question to you tonight is, do you want it? Because it's offered to us for free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is in many ways a strange story to us. With strange components. It's hard to imagine wind rushing through the room and fire moving across the room and coming to rest on people and then speaking strange languages. But Jesus, what it shows us ultimately is that you love us and that you've offered yourself for us and that you care so much about us that you don't just save us and let us be, that you come and you, you plant yourself right in, in our hearts. And you promise to change us and make us different, make us better to grow us. Lord Jesus, we pray that would be true of all of us tonight. And if, if, if it's not, would you make it so? Jesus, we pray it in your name. Amen.